Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm writing about being happier, not plain happy. Plain happy may or may not be achievable at any given moment, but there's often something you can do to either improve your approach to the moment or improve the thing that is frustrating you itself. That was KJ Dell'Antonia on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk dot com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mental health professionals, don't forget to check out Praxis Continuing Education if you're interested in ACT, mindfulness-based interventions, compassion-focused therapy. They have online programs, both live and on-demand programs, where you can learn all of these skills and therapies and do it with real masters that develop them, as well as those that are key players. So check them out. You can get a coupon code for $50 off their live courses, and you can access Praxis at praxiscet.com. If you want the coupon code, go to our website, which is offtheclockpsych.com. We're also affiliates with Rick Hansen's Neurodharma program. That's an eight-week online program that follows his book on how to reach your highest potential as a human. 
both Yael and I are practicing the online program and it's a lot of information. If you sign up now, you also have access to some live question and answers with Rick. So check it out on our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you'll find a $40 coupon code there when you go to our website. Diane, I'm excited to meet with you today to introduce an interview that I did with KJ Delantonia, who I've long been a huge fan of, and she wrote a wonderful book called How to Be a Happier Parent. And happiness in parenthood is always an important sort of area of inquiry, and one that's especially important right now as we're navigating through this pandemic. I wanted to talk about this idea of what it means to pursue happiness in parenting. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that in the context of acceptance and commitment therapy. I think it's interesting because the pursuit of happiness is different in ACT, right? It's not as much that sort of hedonic pleasure of happiness of those good, happy feelings, but much more, a more deeply satisfying journey of life. And where it really boils down to is, are you lining up with your values? Are you acting in ways, bringing the qualities of action that you care about to your daily life? And I think that fits so much with parenting because there's so much about, honestly, parenting which doesn't feel quite so joyful or happy <laughs> sometimes. And there's there's moments where it's incredibly fun and meaningful and connecting, and then others that are just like slogging through. And I think that um, shifting our perspective, which is another part of ACT, towards finding meaning and finding purpose in our parenting can help us feel, I guess, that uh, deeper kind of happiness that you're, that, you know, she talks about. But there's also just the day-to-day easing of stress, (laughs) On ourselves. And, and I really think in the interview, you talk about that in terms of being more flexible with ourselves right now. And that there's actually some good um, research that flexibility in parenting is what predicts your ability to do well at times of adversity, like school shootings or through natural disasters. So being a flexible parent does a lot right now in helping your kids out. You know, one one of the ways that we can be more flexible is by focusing in on what matters most. And as you're pointing out in acceptance and commitment therapy, it isn't sort of the moment to moment feeling good. It's really figuring out what effectiveness, what is valuable, what's the most important thing for us. And KJ Del Antonia, interestingly, not a therapist, but is a journalist who did a lot of deep inquiry into what makes for happier parenting. And she, in this interview, talks about the sense of being effective, like when we feel like we're doing a good job in parenting. And I think in the language of acceptance and commitment therapy, that really does come back to when we're parenting in ways that are meaningful and and driven by a sense of purpose of what we're trying to do as parents. And that's not necessarily what feels good in the moment, but really what values we're trying to prioritize. And I think sometimes we can lose sight of that especially with kids, we can get so lost into our our day-to-day activities. We may lose sight of what's, what's most important, getting our kids fed. It's really important that we get our kids teeth brushed on a regular basis. It's really important that we manage our own tempers. And I'm hearing a lot, my gosh, I'm losing it on my kids way more than I, I usually do. These are important in terms of what really matters right now. And I think that things like chores or delegating some of our stressors so that we're not responsible for all of it plays into those. But that's where we have to step back and look at the big picture in parenting sometimes. 
Absolutely. And I think this challenge of losing our tempers more often is definitely one that I'm experiencing. My patients are all talking about, my friends are all talking about, and I just want to sort of foreshadow that I'll be next month releasing an episode with an author of a book who writes very specifically about how to how to reduce losing your temper with your children because it is such a common challenge these days. The other thing that I just wanted to point out too is that you know when we're noticing ourselves having a shorter fuse than normal, it is useful to take a step back and be curious about what it is that we each need. And sometimes it's just really hard to get it. I tend to have a shorter fuse when I'm really tired and there's just so much going on and the stress is so high with all of the demands and and sort of the lack of supportive infrastructure. And even though I really could use more sleep, I can't sleep very well because I'm just feeling kind of anxious all the time. And so some of the things are just really hard to come by. And so one of the things that I keep coming back to is the importance of self-compassion. And we'll link again in the show notes to our episode on self-compassion for parents and the other episode that we did with Dr. Christopher Germer on self-compassion, because I think it's so important. And um, I think a lot of the tips that KJ Delantonia offers are really terrific. But again, to just come back to, you know, what is it that we need to kind of be our most flexible selves and to offer ourselves the kind of kindness to get through the challenges is so important. One of the other things that I think is important too is to offer some structure. I think that's another thing that we're really lacking right now. And Diana, I know this is something you've been thinking a lot about in your current situation. I wonder, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you've come up with. So I heard this great quote by Jamie Anderson that uh, grief is love with no place to go. Mm-hmm. And I've been sort of contemplating that, the grief that we're all feeling around not having maybe a place to put our love for sports or our love for family vacations or our love for uh, social engagement and how our kids are experiencing that grief, right? Where where is their, Where can their love go? And... So one of the things that we did in our family is we sat down and created this summer plan. And I used all of the ideas based on ACT to create the summer plan or this activity, sort of a home homeschool activity for them to design their summer plan. So the first was to think about areas of their life or domains of their life as lands that they might want to explore this summer. And so my little one drew friend land and family land and sports land. Uh, and then thinking about in those lands... What, what do you care about most and why do, what, why do you care about that in that land? So they got to write about what's meaningful to them and then designing actions that they could take, the, the place for their love to go in those lands, and then some obstacles that they may face. I talked about like mountains and rivers they might have to cross that are inside themselves or outside themselves that might be hard and how they would respond to those obstacles. So we put this summer plan on our website. And so you can download it there and you can draw pictures or with your kids, or you could have them write it out as a fun way to create some structure for summer that's based on values and some of the act principles that we talk about on this show. I love it. And I love it too, because it links back to your brave learner episode, which is really about following your kids' interests as a way to boost home learning. And I think you had designed it for slightly older kids, but I tried this exercise with my first grader and he loved it. It was very cute. And we were, we were sort of sitting in front of a computer and looking at different resources that were online and thinking about books. And he's really interested in astronomy. So it was a really fun, it was actually a fun and um, connecting experience for me to go through that with him. Um, so I, I definitely recommend parents to take a look at that. It's, it's a fun way to bring some of these ideas to life. 
Yeah. And if your kid creates something cool, share it on uh, Facebook and tag us. Welcome to an episode where I get to chat with an editor, writer, and podcaster, KJ Del Antonia. KJ Del Antonia wrote and edited the Motherlode blog at New York Times and was a contributing editor to the Well Family section. She's co-host of a terrific podcast for writers called Hashtag Am Writing. She's also author of the book, How to Be a Happier Parent, Raising a Family, Having a Life, and Loving Almost Every Minute of It, which we'll be talking about today. And then just as like a little teaser, she's coming out with her first novel, The Chicken Sisters, this June. Welcome, KJ. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have the chance to talk to you. I just want to sort of give you so many kudos for being so honest on social media and in your book, How to Be a Happier Parent, because I think it's so relatable and it's so refreshing. Like the reality is you can be happier and still have really difficult circumstances and days and and sort of, you know, blow your top. And you wrote yesterday on Instagram, and I love this, so I have to share it, that today, number one, I was interviewed on NPR about being a happier parent and taking it easy on yourself during these tough times. Number two, exploded at my entire family and took all the dishes that were in my sink and threw them in the trash. And three, had to go fish all the dishes in the pan out of the trash. So I had a day. (laughs) Another day. So, I mean, I think that that's so important that you're advocating for trying to build more happiness without denying the reality that parenting in normal times is hard. And even in these really sort of surreal circumstances of the pandemic, that we can still pursue opportunities to, um, you know, connect with our kids and have them be more responsible, which takes some of the load off of us and and sort of make time for ourselves to do our work and and those kinds of things that I think are really important in normal times and, you know, especially now. Well, they're always important. Um, You know, when I was writing How to Be a Happier Parent, I talked to parents in very difficult circumstances some of the time. You know, I talked to parents with uh, chronic illness. I talked to parents who had just lost a partner or who had a a child with significant special needs. And the truth is that in the book, you can't, I thought about this, you can't actually tell which those parents are. Because Mm -hmm. when it comes to chores, homework, mealtimes, those parents desire to make their life happier is the same regardless of the circumstances. I'm I'm writing about being happier, not plain happy. Plain happy may or may not be achievable at any given moment, but there's often something you can do to either improve your approach to the moment or improve the thing that is frustrating you itself. Those are kind of the two ways of going at it. Yeah, I love that. I love that you write that being a happier parent doesn't require you to drastically change like what the what are the cards that you've been dealt, but rather what your narrative is about it, your mindset to choose to feel satisfied even when things are imperfect or as you're saying, you know, to change your response to it. There's a number of things that you wrote distinguish happier parents from less happy parents and again as you're saying, it isn't sort of the circumstances, it's more the response to the circumstances. So I wonder if you can just describe some of the ways that you understand happier parents being different than unhappy parents, if it's not their circumstances. Absolutely. So in my research, which this is a sort of a combination of research I did myself with a professor at Fordham and of just reading every single thing out there that was about being happier in certain parts of your life in general. And in my research, I found that happier parents tended to have four qualities. They tended to do four things well. So if people who described themselves as happier parents, 
a shift from having a really heavy involvement with their kids when they're young to having to being lighter, to being more of a support figure as their kids become more capable. People who describe themselves as happier tend not to put their kids' everyday needs above their own when it comes to what you're having for dinner or, you know, what you're doing in the next hour or what you're doing on a Saturday morning. Not that there's a lot of choices around that at the moment. People who describe themselves as happier take their own needs and their kids into account as opposed to having chicken fingers every night. Um, (laughs) People who describe themselves as happier as parents look for, they look for the good in their everyday experiences. So even when things are not going great, you know, when there's a kid on the floor crying because algebra is just too hard and there's another one who just slammed themselves into their bedroom and says that they hate you, um, they're still able to take a step back and, and you know, maybe take a look at the horizon, which is sort of a technique, and recognize that, hey, they're in the house with the food, you know, shelter, kids, healthy, all those kinds of things. And let that be happy, even while the, the children who are being frustrating are not necessarily, a ha- you know, contributing to that experience. That one is one that I feel like we're all, well, it's important and it's also it's both something we're naturally doing and something I think we can get frustrated with ourselves for failing to do. So I don't want to put that on us um, because it's really hard. I'll, I'll just say that, that the last and this the last one is also something that I think we're all much more able to do right now, which is people who describe themselves as happier parent, they know what's really a threat, what's really important, and what is just um you know, noise and fury. So they can recognize, I call it recognizing a tiger when it's a tiger. Your Mm -hmm. kid not getting into the second grade classroom they wanted to be in is not a tiger. COVID-19 is a tiger. So I think we're all, we're all a little, um, I think that's one that I almost, I almost feel like I don't have to talk about anymore because the universe has just slugged us with that one in the face in a baseball bat. Yeah. 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 Well, it's so interesting. I I agree that I think it's so much more evident now than it ever has like, you know, health and, you know, safety is really important. And, you know, what, whether or not your kid does his homework on a given day, not important. And I think that those messages really are coming through in all sorts of, you know, forms through media, through the teachers, through the principals. Um, And at the same time, I find myself as a parent kind of getting anxious, like when my kids aren't doing their work, even though I know logically it's okay that nobody's really expecting it, that we're all just doing the best that we can in these really um, sort of unprecedented, unpredictable circumstances. And yet there is this sort of tendency moment to moment, you know, day to day to see it, to be hard on ourselves, I think, for, you know, what it is that we're not able to get done as parents. And I, I think that is sort of like a, you have to kind of keep coming back to reminding yourself. Right. So I think we are really naturally inclined to beat ourselves up over what we're not doing rather than take a good look at what we are doing. Um, this is a really interesting uh, just moment in terms of being forced to see what is essential. Uh, our kids sports, as it turns out, not essential. Music lessons, not essential. Chess clubs, spelling bees, all that sort of stuff. Uh, somebody else has decided, and I hope that we remember that those were not, those, they're, they're not as important as we've sometimes uh, Right. At the federal level, it's been exactly. determined. Non-essential. Been, yeah, <laughs> non-essential. Um, but school, 
school is still essential and, and it is still happening. We see that and we go, oh, well, well, this is still important. So I need to really be on top of it. Um, but I think that something to think about is why it's important. And, you know, is it important that our kids advance in grammar and algebra as much as they would have otherwise? Eh, kind of. But um, what's really important is that our kids see that their education and preparing them for their future is super important and super essential, and but is not just our responsibility or their teachers' responsibilities, but it's also their responsibilities. So one of the things that I've been saying to parents is that there's sort of two possible universes of online schooling at the moment. I mean, there's multiple ones, but these are the two I'm thinking about. And in one, your kids are old enough to largely deal with this on their own. Um, and if those are your kids, they ought to be dealing it with on their own. And I genuinely think they will learn more by having to get themselves to their Zoom classrooms, figure out their own schedule, uh, getting your support in, say, clearing everyone else off the internet when they need uh, more oomph or, you know, we're all tech support now, right? Um, (laughs) But also figuring out as much of that themselves as they possibly can. So that's one universe. And the other is kids who are not old enough to do that. I mean, realistically, your kindergartner, she's not going to head for your, her Zoom classroom at the right time unless you, um, you make that happen. And that's the point at which I would say, well, if you can make that happen, that's great. If you are an essential worker on your off shift and you can't make that happen, your kindergartner is going to be okay. Um, you know, or you're you're not an essential worker. You're just yourself with your, you know, your existing job and the pressure is just overwhelming you and your kid has missed six Zoom classes and, uh, you know, they're three weeks behind in the homework. It's, it's okay. It really is because they're not, they're, they're learning a lot right now. Um, but it's just not academic. Right. Right. And one of the things I love about your book is that you talk about all these other important domains of teaching that parents do. And, and for example, chores, right? And that now is a great time for us to be guiding them in building their skills and doing chores around the house because, you know, goodness knows there's many more bodies in the house constantly, much more dirt accumulating, and nobody has a cleaner to help or anything like that. And so, you know, the learning may be less academic, but can we sort of take advantage of this opportunity to teach in other ways? And I love how you describe sort of the value of teaching and and really pressing your kids to participate in, you know, maintaining the family environment, because that is something that it's like a life skill, but it also helps them to be a more caring community member. And, And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like, how do we do that and and sort of in ways that work for our family and that support our own happiness and that get our kids kind of on board in, in effective ways. Well, it is funny because I used to sometimes find myself in arguments about the value of chores, especially for kids with, you know, a heavy academic load or kids mm-hmm. that participate in a lot of sports or kids that kids that are quote unquote busy. Um, so I frequently ran into parents who were like, well, you know, that's not their job. School is their job. Mm -hmm. And I would always say, no, being a valuable part of your family, contributing to what keeps your household running, that is also their job because that will always be their job. So I, I think that the importance of chores is amazing. And what I found in talking to parents 
you know, before all this happened about when I talked to parents whose kids did chores, who didn't feel like just, just to take a step back, what I did with the book was pick out the areas that make us as parents unhappy. What I did in each area was to try to find parents who were not stressed out. So everybody's stressed out about something, right? This is actually something I love to remind parents of, which is I've got a list of nine areas that stress people out. Homework, chores, discipline, screen time, meal time, vacation. Yes, yes. (laughs) but you're probably not stressed about all of them. Like for me, for example, meal time is pretty, I mean, it's stressful right now, but um, it's pretty okay. Whereas... Uh, chores were a source of significant stress. So then I would talk to people for whom chores were not a source of significant stress. And what I, because their kids just did them, basically. They they have magic kids? They have (laughs) magic children who have magic. No. (laughs) What I found was by, what I found was two and things. A lot of the families whose kids just do chores never, ever, well, no, they, they never let up on the expectation that their kids would help out. And that was frequently because they couldn't, because they were single parents, because they had eight or nine children, because they were running a family home business and the, the level of busyness for the parents was such that if the kids did not pitch in, it wasn't even just that things didn't get cleaned, it's that people didn't eat. And that just it made me take a step back and realize it wasn't that those were magic parents and it wasn't that those were, you know, amazing kids. It was more just that those parents never for one, never for one minute did it occur to them that it would be too much for a kid to unload the dishwasher or that, uh, you know, they should go ahead and do it or the just anything. They just, from, from the minute the kid was capable, the kid was, the kid was doing it. And that's where the rest of us tend to let up. And certainly it's where I let up. This is, this is not me saying I can do this. Is, it, this is something I have found really, 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 really hard, which is you got to make them do it. That's yeah. the, it all comes down to you. I have tried every system before COVID-19 for getting my ch- children to pitch in. I've tried paying them. I've tried taking away their allowance. I've tried giving them star points. I've tried charts. I've tried, I've tried putting dollars in a cup and taking one away every time they don't do. And their chores are things like feed animals, take out trash, empty dishwasher. They're pretty nothing. <laughs> and so, so what ultimately worked? Well, the, any of it will work. Any of it will work. That's the thing. What ultimately works is you just have to make them do it. And also the other thing that works, and this was something that someone told me that has really helped me a lot. We want two things as parents. We want our kids to clear the table after dinner, right? And we want them to do that pleasantly and without being reminded. Those Mm -hmm. are two completely separate things let go of the happily and without being reminded and stick to the, you are doing it. And that's where you find success. Happily, everyone I talk to happily and without being reminded might come when they're in college. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) So what? See, I think we feel like we're a failure when we have to remind. We feel like we failed when we walk into the kitchen and there's a random pair of socks on the floor, which is true in my house every single day. I don't know why. Why would you put your socks in the kitchen? Why? I have no idea. But I feel like a failure every time. Has no one taught you where to put your dirty socks? Is no, does it not even occur to you that no one wants to see your dirty socks or whatever? That's the part of it that I needed to let go was the feeling like a failure because they weren't doing it happily or they weren't doing it without being asked. And 
that made things better. Um, now I just bug them till they do it. And now that we're all in here together in this way, I'm prone to losing it if they don't do it because it's just too much, right? Yeah, yeah. And even if everyone, if everyone does their very best and only leaves one thing, it's still a lot of things for me. Right. So I really need them to do right, not their very best, which for whatever reason is rarely actually, it's not really their very best. It's their very feeblest. I don't know. Yeah. They're very frustrating. I'm sure yours are too. <laughs> they are. And mine are a lot younger. And, you know, I think I definitely have fallen prey to like, well, they're too little or they don't know how. But I too, since this quarantine began, have gotten, I have lost my top many more times. And I've gotten a lot more willing to kind of push because you write this, but like happier parents make for happier kids. And I, I really need them to participate more so that I don't lose my mind. And they can rise to the challenge. It, they're not that happy about it often. My three-year-old now, I, he's, he needs to bring his dish to the sink after he's done. It's totally age appropriate, but he'll say, I don't want to, or I'm too tired, which is, which is not, you know, that he doesn't want to is true. That he's too tired is untrue. I have to go to the bathroom. Yeah, he's like, no, house. I'm. Sometimes he says I'm too busy, <laughs> which is very funny. And I say, no, you have to do this. Do this right now. And if I say it with a serious enough tone, he does do it. And then I, I tell him, you know, that makes me really happy because we're working together, and that feels good. And actually, I think that is really reinforcing it in a very happy way for, for all of my three boys that they feel good about being community members and they also feel better that I'm not losing my top. So, so, so there is that, but I do want to sort of go backwards a little bit because you have these 10 wonderful mantras that I think are really helpful when we're struggling. Oh, wait, 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 before ahead. we go backwards, I do want to go to the mantra, but I, I think this is a great moment to just talk about how we measure happiness in parents and ourselves and the measure of happiness for parents is not how many, um, you know, rainbow unicorns you're pooping out or whatever. <laughs> it's, it's whether or not you feel like you're doing a pretty good job. And that's the interesting thing with chores. It is super painful to get them to do it. And it, it is not a pleasant or happy making experience. But when our kids are contributing in real and measurable ways, we feel like we are doing this better. When they are sitting around with their feet kicked up on the table, playing on their phones while we clean up after the meal that we just cooked, shopped for, paid for, etc., we feel like dirt. So that it doesn't make us happy. I guess this does go to the mantras because yes. I know this is one of them. It does not make you happy to bug your kid in that moment, but it makes you super happy that he is learning that that is part of his contribution to the family and that feels really good and it feels good for him. It does. Yeah. And so, so getting back to your mantras, so you have these 10 mantras and I, I love so many of them, but the one that I'm thinking of in the context of this conversation is you can be happy when your children aren't. And I think you're pointing to this really important distinction that positive psychology or happiness researchers get to, which is there's a couple different ways to define happiness. There's sort of like the in the moment feel good, the pleasure and gratification that we might feel. And then there's the meaning and value and sense of living according to a way that gives us a sense of purpose and direction. We want both. We both want to feel good in the moment and we want to feel like we're living in a way that, you know, offers a sense of purpose and direction. And 
it's okay to recognize that in any given moment, we may not have access to both, but usually we can have access to one that if we're not able to feel good because our kid is complaining and whining, we can sort of default back to this sense of like, okay, this is important as a parent. This is what I want to be doing because I want to be teaching. I don't just want my kid to feel good. I want to teach them how to be like a resilient, healthy, helpful, kind, compassionate, thoughtful adult. Like that's the ultimate goal of my parenting. So you can be happy in that way, even when your children aren't. And that's one of the mantras. You can be happy when your children aren't. And I think that's a really important message to be absorbing again and again. And it's also really important right now because it it goes both to you can be happy about, um, you know, what you're doing around chores or what you're doing around online schooling, even when your kids are not super happy with you. That's one way that it plays out. But it also plays out in that, you know, there's, there's that saying, you're only as happier as your unhappiest child. And I think that is totally unfair to both us and our kids. And, you know, now is a good moment to think about that. There are times when our kids are going to be super unhappy and super disappointed right now about things that are not happening for them. And we don't have to take that onto ourselves. You can be empathetic and sorry for them, but without necessarily like absorbing the full force of their emotion. And that's actually really good for them. And I'm going to go back to an example from more normal times because it's a little more challenging and a little different right now. But just for example, if your kid doesn't, you know, they don't make the top sports team that they really wanted to be on. And they bring that to you and they are super unhappy and they are super disappointed. If you take that on, too, then it just blows up into this whole big thing about, um, oh, wow, I, I actually, I didn't really think this was super important, but gee, my parent thinks this is important too. Or the other piece of it is them seeing that your emotions really do depend on theirs. And that's really stressful for a kid, right? It's a time of pressure, right? Yeah. So now or in more normal times, we don't want our kids to feel like they have to pretend to be happy so that we can be happy. That's exactly what we don't want. Right. And we want them to have independent lives that are driven by what's important to them and not by what's important to us. And just, it kind of reminds me of this study that you cited in your book where you talk about how a lot of kids' least favorite moment after a sporting event is the ride home with their parent when the parent is sort of giving them tips, which is a really interesting thing, right? Yeah. You think it would be like a bonding experience if the parent was really into it, but that isn't what the kid's experience often turns out to be. It feels like pressure. Right. They really take it on themselves, even when we don't necessarily mean it. And and something to keep in mind is that our kids, this may not seem to be true, but it is. They really don't like seeing us unhappy. Uh, They don't want to disappoint us. They don't want to make us unhappy. um, And they don't want to see us unhappy. So yeah, they can feel super pressured when we don't intend or think we don't intend to be putting pressure on them about whatever it is that they uh, are or aren't doing in school or in sports or in music or or in any other arena, even in simpler areas like uh, socially. If your child comes to you having not been invited to a birthday party and you get really upset on their behalf, um, that can be really stressful for them because First of all, it, it, it makes that birthday party seem way, way, way more important. But secondly, you know, this is something that they can't control, that when they bring it to you, you're 
reacting. And I guess the one thing that they could control would be not bringing it to you. And that's not what we want, right? So it's really important to show our kids that we have a different and separate emotional life than they do. And also that they're allowed to have a different and separate emotional life than we are. Right, right. That they don't have to catch our unhappiness that that they can sort of, you know, create their own independent emotional world that isn't um, going to be driven by ours. And when we're talking about how to be a happier parent, it not only helps us to feel happier, but also reduces the pressure and therefore increases the, our kids happiness too, which is, you know, a, a really nice thing to be doing as we're sort of, you know, building their abilities and skill sets towards, you know, maturation. It's just plain good for us. I mean, our kids are going to have disappointments and setbacks. They need to have disappointments and setbacks. Do you really want to raise a kid who has never had a disappointment or setback? In the moment, sure. But that, I mean, that's, you've, just, you've just raised the world's worst college roommate, right? Um, <laughs> somebody who just knows the world's worst college student, someone who knows absolutely nothing about getting past challenges. Um, so we actually want them to have these experiences and to to recognize that is super helpful and also it's just it's just okay you and i know um that what second grade clap teacher our kids get does not matter in the long run doesn't even probably matter next week it's sad if they're not in with their buddy but you know it's it's okay and on the same token you and i both know that which college you get into I mean, it feels like it matters. It feels big, but really you end up going where you end up going and then you decide that it was great and then you make the best of it and that's the way that it works. So for us to sort of soak in these possible disappointments for our kids, is it's not it's not great for us too because we know better. We know that those things, I guess that goes back to what I was saying earlier, we know those aren't tigers. The really important thing is that you hopefully be able to go to class at all. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Right. And that sort of brings me to this Atlantic article that you actually linked in your Twitter feed. And I'll link to it on our show notes because it was a terrific piece that talked about the skyrocketing rates of anxiety disorders. And it goes into some depth about this idea that the more that we accommodate our kids' comforts, the more we try to help them to feel happy and to avoid uncomfortable emotions like disappointment or anger or or sort of you know rejection, that we tend to harden their resistance to discomforts. And that makes it harder than for them to tolerate a lot of, you know, what, what life involves, which is sort of, you know, making it through 
difficult situations and figuring out how to pick ourselves back up and, and do a better job the next time. And, you know, you certainly talk about this in your chapter on picky eaters, on, on food, mealtimes, and, and you talk about this sort of um, one of the reasons that we can perpetuate picky eating, not necessarily that we cause it, but that sometimes as parents, we do this thing where we sort of feed into it by accommodating the discomfort that kids might have around certain food groups or, or you know, all meals, I guess. Um, and, and that as a, when we, when it comes to happier parenting and also more effective parenting, because the two are linked, that that's actually the wrong choice, even though it makes our kids more uncomfortable in the moment. Right. And people, parents of picky eaters, relax. We're not saying it's your fault. No. Um, yes. Thank you. <laughs> yes. You know, we, like you said, we tend to really accommodate it. And so when I am thinking about picky eating, which is a great sort of non-threatening example of anxiety, um, you know, any kid can learn to tolerate having food that they do not like on their plate. You're not saying they have to eat it, but they can learn to have it. They can learn, you know, that you're going to serve it. They can learn that every meal is not going to be um, something that they love, but that they will always be able to leave the table not feeling hungry. Um, you know, that probably involves giving up some of your stressing around nutrition. And I think I, I say in the book that, you know, researchers have said that that's okay, that you don't want to look at a kid's every meal, you want to look at their overall um, their overall health. And honestly, you can live on bread and butter alone for quite some time before you develop scurvy. So it's, it'll, it'll, it'll be okay. Um, so I have a lot of techniques around that in there, but it's just really important to keep, to keep everything else as normal as possible and not to bend over backwards trying to deal with that particular anxiety. And that's what Kate Julian, who's the author of The Atlantic Piece, what she found in her research was that that sort of applies in a lot of different areas. The more you bend over backwards to accommodate your child's anxiety, whether it's about going to parties or, you know, starting a new school or being in a classroom with a teacher that they find difficult or um, getting to their Zoom classroom or dealing with a particular friend, the more you try to fix it so that they don't have to deal with that, the less likely they are to learn to deal with it. Yeah. And, and so it makes it harder for them. And then also as a parent, it just m creates so much pressure. And, and honestly, if you don't like to, as you mentioned before, have chicken nuggets for dinner every night, like that's a lot less fun and, and happy for you. And so it, it's sort of not helpful on all ends, but at the same time, you know, from at any one given mealtime, if you're, you know, serving things that your child doesn't like. And by the way, I have a picky eater. My oldest um, for his birthday requested a day of all white food because that is just his preference. It's what he's comfortable eating. It's what makes him happy. And to sort of serve him foods that are, you know, outside of that color group um, is really difficult. Like he makes faces, he sometimes gags, and it's really uncomfortable in the moment. And yet I, I sort of always have this research in the back of my mind that accommodating him meal to meal is just a recipe for perpetuating it more. I mean, it's not like it's going to go away when I serve him, you know, a quinoa salad. Not that I do that that often, but it's not like he, you know, if I serve that, you know, a number of weeks in a row, it's not that he's all of a sudden eating it with joy, but it does reduce his discomfort insofar as like he gets more habituated to having it on his plate and knowing that he's probably going to have to have a bite if, so that he doesn't, you know, go to bed super hungry. Well, I was a picky eater, um, a super picky eater, actually. And 
to, to, to sort of speak from the kid side of it, it gets embarrassing, especially if you don't have the wherewithal to deal with even being around or sort of maybe faking your way around a meal that is not something that is ideal for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, it becomes really hard to sort of be out in the world socially. It's hard to eat dinner at your friends' houses. It's hard to start going out to dinner when you get older and you go out with other people. Um, it's really embarrassing to order chicken nuggets when you're 19, right? Um, that would have been my preference. I guarantee I, I totally would have preferred that. So you're really, you know, by not playing too much to that by putting the food out and, and, and just saying, you know, if all you eat of this meal is the bread and butter, so be it, but they have to be around it and, and experience it. I don't know. I think, I think it's uh, I think it's really a gift to them not to, to make it too easy. Not that my mother did make it particularly easy, but she just didn't worry about it. So I had to get past it by myself, which was fine and, and, and ideal and actually pretty much what I prescribed. She just, she cooked what she cooked and, I ate what I ate and we moved on and I now eat everything because it just got too embarrassing. But that was me. (laughs) That's a good success story though. It's a success story, (laughs) which my mother cannot. Well, she's finally let go of it, I think. But for many, many years, I can't believe you're eating a mushroom. I can't believe you eat fish now. And I just had to be like, mom, just stop. You're making me feel like, so that's another thing. Don't make them feel self-conscious about it when they do change. Yeah. And, but it does go back to one of your mantras, which is that, you know, kids change, people change. And so sometimes if we sort of get really um, focused on something that makes us unhappy or that we're concerned about with our kids, we sort of make it a little more difficult for that change to naturally happen. So if we can sort of have a light touch, which is, I think what you're saying your mom did and well, before she started making self-conscious about it, if we can just kind of give like 30. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but if we can kind of give our kids space to, to you know, enter into whatever it is that makes them uncomfortable without getting too anxious or sort of um, monitoring it, then it creates more opportunity for that change to transpire. Right. I mean, often we're still avoiding things or still, um, you know, sort of trying to accommodate anxieties that our three-year-old had when our kid is five and, and quite possibly wouldn't even give a second thought to a you know, how stressful the experience of watching Diego instead of Dora can be. (laughs) And it is super stressful because in Diego, the animals are often in peril. So (laughs) that can be really hard to handle. Not that anyone in my family went through that. The the memories have been scarred into your brain. (laughs) (laughs) Diego is terrifying. The new Dora movie is quite good, though. Uh, your kids are now old enough that they probably they would probably watch, watch that yeah. with joy <laughs> and hysteria. I totally. Uh, I hope she. I don't think she would care if I said that. I've t- my my older daughter is going to turn sixteen in uh, a month. Yeah, a month in exactly a month. She's been binge binge watching the Sweet Life of Zach and Cody. Oh. <laughs> You know, like that cheesy Disney show for like eight-year-olds. But hey, I think everyone can relate to finding comfort in a screen, which is actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about that with you right now because screen time is such an issue in general, but these days it's sort of become an issue that no one knows whether to fight or just give up entirely. So I'm curious what your approach is more generally and then what your approach has been during this quarantine. Um, 
more generally, we spent a lot of time talking about trying to moderate because my kids are teenagers. At this point, if I'm the one in charge of moderating them, we're going to have a big problem in a couple of years when they head to college and do nothing mm-hmm. but binge play Fortnite. So we spend a lot of time on, you know, can you moderate yourself and sort of pressuring them into finding ways to moderate themselves in more normal times. Um, right now, I got no limits on anything. Just flat out, as long as you're getting your online schoolwork done um, and you're getting outside and you're getting some exercise. So we have sort of other things that we require, but as far as what you're doing the rest of the time, I'm, I'm not on it in part because uh, all of my kids are connecting by with, with those screens. They're not for the most part sitting around passively watching. They're, they're playing video games. Sure. But they're playing with the friends that they can't see otherwise. And I am so grateful that that's there. I can't even tell you. I mean, I have a, my oldest, oldest child will be of all things, 19 in June. He's playing Minecraft with his best friend because his best friends in Switzerland, they couldn't see each other anyway. Um, And I love that they're, they're not really playing Minecraft. They're talking on the phone, you know, with like, while building things and fighting zombie villagers. So I, it's, it's all good. Um, that's that's one piece of it, and that's possibly with older kids. And it's also super true that I think what I am seeing, at least, is that they're deeply sick of this. The minute they could see those friends in person instead of playing video games, they're going to be all over it. And that's perhaps the takeaway lesson of the pandemic of what hopefully 2020 and not 2021, right? Yes, um, I hope. <laughs> is, is that, that is, we're very sorry, you know, uh, overlords of fate and the universe that we spent so much time staring at our screens instead of at our friends and we're done now. Thank you very much. Could you just end this movie and let us all get on with learning our lesson? Anyway, um, I feel they're sick of it. So there's that. With younger kids, you almost need to be moderating it because you need it. So if your kids are, because they're going to get sick of it, they probably already are. There's only so much Peppa Pig you can watch, right? Um, And you may not think your kid could ever get to that point, but I guarantee that they can. And if they get to that point when you are also at the point when you just are losing your mind and you really need them to watch some Peppa Pig, that's going to be unfortunate. So (laughs) that's a good point. (laughs) What will happen if you don't is that they will watch until their heads explode. And then they will be really sick of it. And then they will be deeply a pain in in your bottom for a long time while they figure out what they would like to do besides watch. And then they will figure out something that they would like to do besides watch and and some balance will be struck. This is actually the way that those of us that grew up in houses where we watch TV, that's that's our experience because there wasn't so much TV that we would want to watch. So, you know, you could only watch it when you could watch it. And then the rest of the time you had to figure out something else to do. So I think our kids, you know, they, they do get there and they will within this, this framework. But what you probably want is to have set hours during which they have to go through that process of figuring out what else they might like to do. And, you know, four and five and six and seven year olds have found ways to entertain themselves while their parents worked for millennia. Yeah. Without screens. They will find it, but it isn't going to be pretty in the interval. And I don't think we should pretend that it can. And it isn't even because screens are so addictive and so horrible or anything. It's just, it's just because they don't, they don't, they haven't had to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I, I just um, wanted to mention this terrific piece that I really enjoyed in the New York Times. I can't remember who the author's name, but I'll link to it, it which talked a lot about sort of how um, in other cultures, kids learn from a very early age how to entertain themselves in ways that really don't involve a whole lot of anything, right? Like some pieces of paper or, or, or just their imagination. And we know that that's possible, but our kids are really not used to it. I mean, we're so used to, you know, for many modern Americans, we're, you know, we're constantly running our kids around from activity to activity and, you know, doing yeah. homework and play dates and sports. For a lot of it, it's either been activity or screen, activity or screen, right. activity or screen. And we feel like the activity time isn't screen time, but in some ways it's the exact same thing. It's, it's entertainment. our brains yeah. what to do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we, we've, we've. All of our brains have got to come up with things to do that are not running around right now. So, yeah, and that is a good skill. You make to them have. do it the sooner. Yeah, it's a great yeah. skill to have. But I think your point is an important one, which is like the the building of any skill can be painful. Like the process can be painful. It's sort of like you know growing pains, and it's gonna and- feel like it'll never happen. Yes, it <laughs> absolutely is. It's going to feel like there. I mean, hopefully a lot of people are already sort of through this process, but uh, either way, um, yeah, it's going to feel like it'll never, ever, ever happen. It's going to feel like they're going to be laying on the floor outside of your office, or if you don't have an office, uh, laying underneath your desk at your feet. <laughs> and I have, I have been with this child laying there and moaning that they are bored and that they have nothing to do. And there is absolutely nothing you can say to that because their only response to every single thing that you will say will be, no, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. No, that's not fun. No, that sounds awful. The only thing to do is just, uh, you know, not engage and I don't know, find invisible no- noise canceling headphones. That's what we all need. Oh, I like that image. It's like <laughs> shutting it off in your head. But I, I think that like the message around screen is a pretty nuanced one because on the one hand, you know, relax a little bit because this is a really difficult time and it is okay for your kids to be on screen. I mean, number one, like there's so many um, things available on screens these days that are very educational, very creative. And the, the things that are just passive entertainment are fun. It's not sort of, you know, something to be embarrassed about or, or to avoid either because we can enjoy screens and we can even enjoy them as a family. So there's nothing to be afraid of with using screens, but I think the point that you're making of, it's also a useful time to be stepping away from screens and learn how to entertain ourselves is a really useful one. And I think it's really just like a dance between what's going to make sense depending on whether you have work to do or whether, you know, it's a beautiful day outside or how old your kids are and whether they have developmental needs in particular or whether there's a class that they need to attend that it's, it's really sort of um, going to vary moment to moment and day to day, but that to have that flexibility is really useful. Yeah. And it is just, it is, it is so much harder with kids who need more direction and supervision. It just, it just is. Yeah. So um, before I let you go, I was I was hoping that you could give us a little sneak peek about your novel that's coming out. Assume, is the date hasn't changed around it? No, the date has not this. changed. It's coming that's out. Awesome. It's coming out June thirtieth, and it is fun and distracting. It is the story Yay. of two. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It really is. Um, and I am so in search of reads exactly like this right now. And actually, if you need fun and distracting re- reads. Um, I put on Instagram every week about a fun and distracting read that I call books that won't bum you out. 
because yes. I feel like what we just sometimes need is a, an interesting sort of, you know, challenging enough, engaging book that is not about, you know, death and the plague and grieving and serious stuff. Because right now, maybe we've got enough serious stuff going on. So anyway, I, I'm at KJDA on Instagram. And we'll link books to that it. Won't we'll you definitely out. link to yeah. it because it's it's terrific. I actually also draw a lot of inspiration from the books that you guys recommend on your Am Writing podcast. Heavy recommenders of books. Love it. So the Chicken Sisters is the story of two small town sisters, one who stays, one who goes who ultimately, through a, a lovely set of circumstances, end up using a reality TV competition between the two fried chicken restaurants in their small town to attempt to finally resolve their ongoing debate about who made the better life choices. Because we all know that reality TV solves everything. Everything. So <laughs> a lot of fun a lot of fun in it. There's a you know, reality TV competition. There's, um, you know, there's, there's dogs. There's a professional organizer whose life is not nearly so tidy behind the scenes as it appears to be. There's an all chicken version of Stephen King's Carrie and a <laughs> reality TV show host who uh, really needs a donut. So there's, there's a lot. Of, it, it's fun. I had a good time much of the time writing it. One never has a good time the whole time. And I'm in the middle of a really bad time with my second book. But um, I had a good time writing. It's, it's a fun read. But that's such an important point about happiness, right? It's sort of like you can't expect it to be available all the time. But if you sort of stick with it, it does come and there is satisfaction. And, you know, even when we're trying to achieve really demanding goals like writing a book. So I, I love that. Point in general. And I love how happiness is such a focus of yours in, in all the things that you write and certainly in your podcast work. And it's, I think you have so many really inspirational messages. And I just wanted to end with a final quote from your book that I loved, which is a satisfying family life is attainable. And it isn't about raising great kids and turning them out at destination success. It's about finding happiness, real happiness, the kind you can look back on, look forward to and live for along the way. So thanks for joining me today. And I definitely recommend your book and we'll link to um, a bunch of your writing and your podcast and your Instagram and Twitter feeds as well. Thank you. And the book's coming out in paperback basically any day now. But the truth about that is that it means that the hardback is just as cheap as the paperback is going to be. So that's kind of fun. And it's also available digitally. And I read the audio, which was fun. Oh, that's awesome. It taught me all the words that I write that I can't actually pronounce. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, KJ. Thank you. It was great. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.